I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You are listening to episode 15. If you missed the pilot episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what I call Mind Discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds on things above. As we think, so we live, said James Allen. From time to time, I'll have a guest, and this episode is one of those. We have a guest, and we call these Things Above Conversations. My guest today is the great Brian Zond. Hello, Jim. It's good to be with you. Good to be with you, Brian. You are you fastly becoming one of my favorite people on this planet. Well, isn't that lovely? My goodness. It really, yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like you're my brother from another mother. Yeah, because I Amen. That's a good we're, I mean, we're similar in age. We right. uh, we love Jesus. Similar in age. Old. <laughs> <laughs> well, not well, that old. Not that old. 57, 58. We're in that, right? Yeah, that's oh, not bad. Yeah. Um, and we love the church. Mm-hmm. And we love Dostoevsky. And mm-hmm. we love beauty. And we don't like certain versions of the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> so You're I just, man. yeah. So I just, I'm, I'm going, who is this guy? You know, <laughs> uh, it's like at every turn and you know, it's a, uh, it's just been a blast getting to know you. So I'm a step behind you. I write, you write a book on beauty and mine comes out six months later. So I can't keep up with your <laughs> yeah. pace, but otherwise. So um, Brian, uh, one, one of your books that I love water to wine, really, it tells your story. Mm-hmm. Um, of your evolution, I would maybe would say, yeah, that'd be into how you understand God. Journey. Yeah, and uh, that's another thing I love about you because transformation and, and the journey is is so huge, and you tell it so beautifully there. But you also talk about uh, the divine conspiracy, and I think probably a lot of our listeners would be interested to hear the story of how you came upon that book. Yeah, maybe I'll give a little bit of backstory first to give Good. some context. Um, I have been the pastor of one church for 36 years, uh, but really I was leading the group of people that became our church even before that. I'm a product of the Jesus movement. I'm a, I'm a Jesus freak. That's what I am. And by the time I was 17, after I had just a dramatic encounter with Jesus and overnight went from being the high school Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak, uh, I was leading this, well, we called it a coffee house ministry back in those days. It was really mostly a music venue for the Jesus music scene of the time that eventually became our church. And uh, so this is really what I've spent my life doing, pastoring this group of people. By the time I was 45, or as I say, halfway to 90, uh, the growing discontent in my soul was no longer manageable. I had to do something about it, though I had no idea what to do, really. When I say growing discontent, I mean that I'd reached the point where the Jesus who had captured my heart my mind, my imagination fascinated me so deeply as a teenager. I'd arrived at the point where I just thought Jesus deserves a better Christianity than I know. Because what I knew was basically American pop Christianity, kind of the consumerist version of, you know, American Christianity. 
I had become quite successful uh, in that context, never disingenuously so, though. I mean, I always just was doing the best I could as a pastor, but our church had grown large, and by all of the metrics by which Americans like to measure success, I was being successful, but the Christianity I knew just felt thin, pallid, uh, not rich enough. And so I went on a quest. I didn't know what to do other than to just kind of try to start from the beginning and retrace uh, how we arrived at where we are in this present moment in the American context. So I began reading church fathers, began to read some philosophy, uh, began to really try to read the canon of Western literature. And I was doing this, and, and it was good, but I knew I needed something more contemporary. And at this point in my life, I was just embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. I mean, it's almost shocking that I just didn't know. And so I'm reading Church Fathers, reading philosophy, reading good literature, but I'm not reading anything uh, anything of merit from contemporary Christian voices because I just... I was, un, I was unaware. And I prayed one day. And I, did, I just prayed and I said, God, show me what to read. Now, within five minutes of having prayed that prayer, my wife, Perry, walked in the room and just walked up to me and hands me a book and says, here, I think you should read this. Well, of course, now you know it's Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. But here's the thing. Perry had not read this book. And to make it even more strange and mystical, Neither one of us have any idea how that book ended up in our house. We just don't know. To this day, we don't know. I didn't, I don't, I know I didn't buy it. She says she didn't buy it somehow. It was in our house. She found it. She kind of looked at the cover, looked at the back, thought, hmm, Brian might like to read this. <laughs> and she gave it to me. The next day, I was on a flight somewhere. I remember beginning that book on that airplane, and it was like a door in my mind, had been kicked open. And really, it was from that point on that everything changed in pretty rapid succession. What Dallas Willard did was enable me to perceive the kingdom of God. I got what I described to my congregation as new eyes. I was still reading the same Bible I'd been reading every day since I was a teenager, but it was like a brand new book. And that really was the uh, influence of Dallas Willard. And then very quickly, Dallas Willard, for whatever reason, it just led me to the whole cadre of what I would consider the best uh, contemporary Christian voices as it pertains to theology. And so through Willard, in one way or another, I find N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann and whoever else I want to mention, uh, David Bentley Hart, etc. And these began... These, this was both the demolition crew and the construction crew that helped me reconstruct my Christian faith. So that's that's that story in a little bit of well, a nutshell, I guess. Uh, that's that is it's a beautiful story, and another way that I absolutely resonate with you. Except this one, Brian, I I beat you to the punch. Mm-hmm. I'm because, a latecomer to this party in some ways, but go ahead. Well, <laughs> well, I'm a latecomer to a lot of your parties, but I am this one. I well, so in 1994. 9394 um Dallas was teaching a course at Fuller a, a D-min course yeah and it, it it blew up into like 45 people and so he said I need a TA and so um I got the call that's cool. and so yeah and so I sat there here I was uh I was you know new in ministry things and uh 
and he's in day one, he's, he's just, you know, he said, he says to a group of 45 pastors, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And, you know, lots of hands go up, pastors talk. And so, and everybody does some version of a penal substitutionary mm. atonement gospel. And Dallas just, just, he patiently listens. He was rubbing his chin <laughs> one after another. And when they, you know, after about 10 of them had gotten done with it, some variation on that theme, he just said, uh, that wasn't Jesus gospel. <laughs> and you, I watched these guys and, uh, and myself included. And then during a break, they'd come up to me because I'm the TA and they were scared of Dallas. So they'd come up to me and go, what does he mean? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand it myself. So I, I, was, I did that for seven years and probably it was year four that it all came together. And he was writing Divine Conspiracy and he was letting me read it, you know, straight off of his printer. And um, so, yeah, same new eyes. Where where was the kingdom? Right. <laughs> Why did I never you hear know, a sermon on the kingdom? You mentioned just a brief PSA, or I usually like to just give it the full treatment, penal substitutionary atonement theory. Uh, whether or not it's right or wrong, I contend rather vehemently that it's wrong. But even if it is a correct understanding of what is happening on Good Friday, it's not the gospel. I mean, I'll just say it this way. If PSA is the gospel, then the apostles never preached the gospel in the book of Acts because it just doesn't come up. And yet that's what has happened. And I think it's a tragedy that's happened uh, somewhat in the Western church, but very pronounced in the American church, that in many circles, especially evangelical circles, um, Calvin's penal atonement theory has become the gospel. And then, and then, so and so much else gets eclipsed. Almost everything else gets eclipsed, and including the the kingdom. the The gospel that Jesus proclaimed was the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. In fact, I I will say that Jesus never did anything other than to announce or enact the kingdom of God. That's the whole of his ministry. Everything Jesus ever said or did was an announcement and an enactment of the arrival of the kingdom of God that was whirling all around him and everywhere he went. And that's the gospel. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And I heard Dallas many times say that Jesus didn't invent the kingdom. It's, it's in the Old Testament. Right. Anytime, anytime you see the word with, Dallas would say, like, God was with Moses. God was with Abraham. That's kingdom, right? Well, and this but, is what Jesus is alluding to when very early in the Sermon on the Mount, just almost immediately coming out of the Beatitudes, which is sort of the preamble to this sermon, announcing those that are positioned in a place to be most eager to embrace the kingdom that Jesus is coming. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish. I've come to fulfill and I see a lot of terrible exegesis on what that's all about. I think it's as simple as this. Jesus is saying what the law was always aiming for and what the prophets were always calling, calling Israel to and yet never quite able to attain, Jesus in what he is doing is coming to fulfill that. The law was always aiming to produce a people that were faithful in worship and practicing justice. That is, they had a fidelity of worship, and they treated their neighbor in a just way. The prophets are always calling Israel back to that noble aim. Uh, and what 
the aim and the intent of the law and the prophets always was is what Jesus is coming to fulfill, and that is to bring the kingdom of God. But of course, part of the problem is the word kingdom is archaic to us. You know, we don't talk about kingdoms anymore. I say kingdom and, you know, we think fairy tales or, you know, medieval period or something like that. We think of knights at round tables and all of that sort of thing. A kingdom, it's the government of God, right? It's the politics of God. Right. So if every time we read the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom from the heavens, in, in our Bibles, if in our mind we would just read the government of God or the government that comes from heaven, all of a sudden, those verses have a new urgency, a new energy, a new relevance, a new edge. Uh, once again, the message is, is somewhat threatening, perhaps, for many that are presently situated in a context where the arrangement of the world as it is is advantageous to people like them. I mean, when Jesus says things like this in announcing the arrival of the kingdom, many who are first shall be last, and many who are last shall be first. Well, I mean, <laughs> how do we hear that? Uh, exactly. I mean, yeah, you talk about threatening. It was threatening for Jesus too. You know, I I love how you you pointed out that just after the Beatitudes comes that right. do not think because the Beatitudes are. I I believe the Beatitudes were shocking to the original hearers. They I think still they are, went, aren't they? What? Yeah, if, if you really, hear them right. Yeah, if you don't turn them into everything we don't believe (laughs) as Americans anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, if if you really think about that, for they shall inherit the earth. That's the one I think that Americans believe the least. We think it's the mighty (laughs) and the powerful, those with the most nukes, those with the trillion dollar budget for their military. They're gonna, you know, rule the earth. They're gonna inherit the earth. And Jesus says, no, the meek. Yeah, I mean, he was a brilliant preacher, so he knew. That, let's start out with a with a let's get him, yeah, <laughs> and so exactly. here comes the beatitudes, and then he says, "Don't think that I've come." And why, you know, I say to my students, "Why, why would you ever say the words, don't think that I'm doing this'? Well, because they think that he's doing this. Right. You know, he's abolishing the law and the prophets, and as you said, Brian, no, no, he was saying, "I'm fulfilling them. I'm bringing them to where he's, they were always meant to be." Beatitudes. He's not. I mean, some of them you might possibly read as an, for example. To be a peacemaker is noble, and right. you should try to be that. To be merciful is is uh, godly, and you should try to be that. But I don't think Jesus is primarily exhorting us to be a certain way. He is simply announcing there are certain people that are positioned in a way that they will more easily embrace the arrival of the kingdom. Eugene Peterson told me that he wanted to translate in the Message Bible the Beatitudes is lucky. You know, lucky are the poor in spirit. Lucky are those that mourn. Lucky are the... And that was the one time where his publisher just (laughs) refused. And he made all of his scholarly arguments about why it was a proper translation of that Greek word and et cetera, et cetera. And they said, yeah, but people just are going to hate that. Because, you know, there's some people just have a superstitious idea about the word lucky. But Jesus is saying, you know, people that are that are already beat down, man, they're lucky. People that aren't trying to be number one, they're lucky. People that already have a penchant to be merciful, they're lucky because the kingdom is going to appeal to people like that. It'll be easier for them to embrace that. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And and people like, I'll just say it like this, Jim, like me. 
people like, uh, you know, relatively prosperous white middle-class male in America in the early 21st century, um, I have to work harder to embrace everything that Jesus seems to be hinting at in his announcement of the kingdom as good news, because I could see, I don't, but I could see it as threatening my privilege and position. And if, if the gospel is really being proclaimed, it will be good news and also somewhat threatening to people of privilege. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the key, as you said there, is in the kingdom. That's what I stress with students. Yeah. You, you can't understand the Sermon on the Mount without those three words. Otherwise, it'll bury you. Right. <laughs> you know, oh, wait, no anger, no lust, no lying, no judging. Yeah, it just yeah, you, becomes you, a, a heavy moralism sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But if you say in the kingdom now where I have God's provision, protection, and the other power, is I can do it. We tend to hear the Sermon on the Mount as individuals because that's what we, what we are today. We are radical individuals. I think an attempt to live the Sermon on the Mount as an individual is doomed to failure. If, if we are to live according to the Sermon on the Mount, which I believe we are to, we can only have a hope of doing it in the context of a community. We have to do this together. We can't do it as a lone individual. I, I love everything you've said, and the, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom has absolutely changed everything about the way I understand God and Christianity, my faith and the church and everything. Um, and I teach it. And and one pushback I get from people is, yeah, so, you know, you've proved to me that Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot. Um, in fact, I even make my undergrad students print off every verse that Jesus talks about the kingdom. You're just, just printing out the New Testament. I mean, the, the Gospels anyway. Yeah, from the Gospels. Just, yeah. yeah every Especially time, Matthew, just Mark, and Luke. That's just it, you know. Yeah. Limit your range to yeah. Limit your range to the gospels and kingdom, and so they come in and their eyes are wide open. Like, why didn't anybody tell me this? That's why I make them do it. But then the follow up question I often get is, okay, Jesus talked about it, but why not Paul? Why don't we see right. it in Paul? I did a. Th- I I spent a period of time. It was probably influenced by having read the Divine Conspiracy, where on Mondays. I used to call Mondays my thinking day. <laughs> and I would just, that was just a day I dedicated to reading, praying, and thinking. And I worked for about six months on this question What is salvation? And I didn't want to traffic in cliches. What is salvation? And working on this question, I arrived at this conclusion that what Jesus tends to call, the kingdom of God. And Paul tends to call salvation are the same thing. Jesus rarely spoke of salvation. In fact, the the noun salvation, that we translate salvation, Jesus only uses twice. And as you've already noted, Paul doesn't use the phrase kingdom of God very often. He does some, but not, not as often as Jesus does. But here's what I've concluded, that what Jesus tends to call the kingdom of God, Paul tends to call salvation, but they're talking about the same thing. So here's the answer to my question. What is salvation? Salvation is the kingdom of God. And our personal experience of salvation is our participation in the kingdom of God, which includes the forgiveness of sins and the hope of resurrection, but it's not limited to simply the individual uh, being given a ticket to go to heaven when they die. The, 
the, the problem, the reason we come up with a problem, the reason we think that there might be a problem between Paul and Jesus is because of, of the way we think about salvation. We think about salvation as privatized and post-mortem. That is the lone individual receiving a ticket to go to heaven when they die. And Paul wouldn't understand any of that thinking. In fact, I, I feel like I'm on solid ground when I say, with the apostles, salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging, so that we belong to this community of the redeemed who are participating in the new way of being human, proclaimed by Jesus and inaugurated in his death, burial, and resurrection. So that's how I respond mm. to that question. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I Well, I also have an answer. Let's see what you think about this. I want your feedback. but. Okay. You know, Paul does use the phrase in Christ or Christ in us, I think, 89 times. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, for Paul, salvation was or the kingdom was being in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're obviously I mean, that's I talked about the with God life. Yeah. You know, I mean, the with God life is one thing. But to say, wait a minute, he's actually in me and I'm in him. Because Paul's grand theological project is how do you justify Gentiles as Gentiles? belonging to or being in the Jewish body of Messiah, the body of Christ. Peter uh, understands this is the case, but he can only appeal to a mystical experience. He talks about the vision he had in Joppa. He talks about the experience that occurred at the house of Cornelius in Caesarea. So it falls to Paul to actually come up with a theological explanation for how you justify Gentiles as Gentiles being full members and participating in Christ, that is, in the body of Messiah. The thing is, Paul solves the problem so well that it created another problem, and that was that we no longer understand what Paul was talking about when he's talking about justification. But basically, all he's really talking about is how do you justify Gentiles belonging to the Jewish body of Messiah? Mm. That's brilliant. That's absolutely. So here's a hypothetical question. The Apostle Paul walks into an American church in our day, Mm -hmm. and here's what we're calling PSA. Here's a version of the gospel uh, of substitutionary atonement. You can go to heaven when you die. How would he respond? Uh, I think he would—I think we would be somewhat scandalized at the high ecclesiology of Paul. How—I think he would challenge us on where is the church— in this presentation of the gospel. Mm. You're handing out tickets to loan individuals to experience something essentially when they die. Um, one of the things I found most interesting, I, I did this, and uh, I read all of the sermons in the book of Acts, and there's, a, there's eight or ten depending on what you count as a sermon. And what I found was that in none of them were there any appeals to afterlife issues. Now, presumably, the apostles had certain ideas about post-mortem issues. Paul brings this up in some of his letters because he's asked about it, but it was never their emphasis. Their emphasis was not about uh, pray this prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. Um, 
No, their emphasis was believe this announcement that we are making, this euangelion, this royal announcement of good news that the world has a new king, a new emperor, a new Caesar, a new Lord, and he is Jesus of Nazareth. We know this because God has raised him from the dead and now begin to participate in this world under new management where Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, I think Paul would call us to something like that. I think he would be dismayed at how um, privatized and postmortem we've made it. And, you know, this, and again, people are going to think I'm just trafficking here probably in um, polemics, but I'm not really trying to. Uh, this is what the Gnostics did. I mean, Gnostics had several problems, and really defining Gnosticism is itself a bit of a chore. But one of the one of the interesting things about this original rival to authentic Orthodox Christian faith that could fall under the general heading of Gnosticism is that they were not persecuted. Christians were persecuted, but Gnostic Christians or Gnostic um, heterodox Christians were not persecuted because Gnosticism presented no challenge to the present order. Um, the the earliest Christians were not persecuted for telling people how to go to heaven when they die. Rome didn't care where you went when you were dead. <laughs> they cared about who you confessed as Lord right now. Uh, Rome was generally very tolerant of other religions. I mean, this is how they became an empire. They weren't going to try to police everybody's religion. They were interested in your politics. And if you if your gospel was... If you will accept this person into your heart, you'll go to heaven when you die. That would not have raised a single mm. eyebrow in the Roman Senate. But when you have a group of people saying, Jesus is Lord, and by implication Caesar is not, that can get you thrown in the lion's den. And this is another example of language that has somewhat betrayed us. Lord is also a term that we hear as purely spiritual. So that when we hear someone say, Jesus is Lord, we, we think by implication, yes, Jesus is Lord of my private spiritual life. But in the original context, Lord was the primary uh, title given by the Senate to Caesar. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, we are making as much a political statement as we are a spiritual statement. Now, now, when I say political, I don't mean partisan, because sometimes, uh, you know, I, I don't traffic in partisanship at all. I'm, I'm not interested in elephants and donkeys and all of that. I'm just not interested. Uh, but I am interested in being an expression of the alternative society that God has ordained through his son, Jesus Christ, and living like that. And that will then have what we call today political implications. Right, right. Oh, Brian, I could talk to you forever. I just, uh, or listen to you forever. Uh, gosh, this has been fantastic talking about the kingdom and and the gospel. And um, I, I'm going to plug my one of my books because I can. It's my podcast. Uh, I wrote a book called uh, The Magnificent Story. And the subtitle is Discovering a Gospel of Beauty, Goodness, and Truth. And Brian, I want to have you back to talk about the transcendentals, particularly beauty, because your book, Beauty, will save the world was a game changer for me. So would you do that? Would I you come would back on another episode? That. All right. Time, Jim. It's been a wonderful time. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know I did. I love talking with Brian. He is absolutely brilliant and so inspiring and encouraging. I hope you join me next week for episode 16. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode or any of these episodes, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you'll get them automatically every week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you are asked, hey, what's on your mind, your answer will be things above. <laughs>